What's our intro again? Um, what is our intro? Episode Episode six. Is this six? This yeah. isn't six. It is. This is three. This is three that will be. Oh, that's right. That people know about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's start that over. Episode three. Go at it, podcast with your hosts. Tate Brown and Tyler Reed. Welcome. Welcome to the studio. What, uh, a, what a week it's been. Oh my gosh. Tons of news. Exciting news. Um, I did something kind of crazy did last you? night. Did you? Yeah. Let's hear about it. Uh, have you ever done Christmas lights? I have not. Never? Never. Okay. So I may have helped my dad at one point, but probably not. I never even I never even helped my dad. And now I wonder how they ever got up, you know, <laughs> because yesterday um, for the listeners, neither of us have owned houses for very long. Um, this is my first year. I thought, you know, there's only a couple of my neighbors that put up Christmas lights. I'll give it a shot. So I bought the Christmas lights and I invested in LED lights instead of the incandescents and you know, with hopes to save some energy and they still look cool. You know, I got the warm white lights, so they still, they look traditional. I was pretty amped up about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that was till I got on my roof and that pitch doesn't look as steep from the ground. <laughs> do you know the exact pitch of your roof? I don't know. What do they do? Like two over 12 or something like that. How do they, I think it's how do rise they, over run, rise over run. Yeah. And it's on a 12 foot scale, right? Yes. Two I over 12 would be way shallow. I sure. Think. Sure. I think mine is nine over 12. And I don't even know what? if the nomenclature is right. That'd be almost straight up. We're not construction workers. Okay. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk in degrees. I, good thing we're not construction workers. Because just a side note here. <laughs> Do you know construction workers work in tenths of a foot? Uh, No. That's architects. Yes, but also when you are out excavating a property and things like ah. that, or taking, making sure your hole is a certain depth, it's tenths of oh, a Oh yeah, I remember you telling me how you learned this. Yeah, I learned that. I learned it because <laughs> I borrowed my neighbor's uh, transit level and stick, like yardstick. It's yeah. not a yardstick. He's a, a surveyor, stick. right? He works for a, he's a contractor or construction. I don't, I don't know what, how you would say it, but but these are surveyors' tools. They're surveyors' tools, and I start using it, and it's boggling my mind. I had no idea what I was looking at, and it made me feel so stupid. <laughs> but that's it. That's another topic. Yeah. Well, it is a good thing we're not in construction, but I would say in degrees, it's got to be close to forty-five. Okay. You know, here in Utah, we have steeper roof pitches in a lot of places uh, just because of the snowfall mm -hmm. and it's not 45 but dang it felt like it and whatever it is here's the deal when i got on the roof and i actually like you know when you're standing uh where two roof lines meet each other it's less steep so i'm walking up that thinking oh this is no problem but then when you get on that, just that sheer slope, yeah, and that's all you've got. You've got nothing to hang on to. 
all of a sudden the shingles feel a little more loose because uh, the grains on the shingles, they're not totally stuck. Yeah. Um, these asphalt shingles. It, they turn into little ball bearings underneath your feet. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm on this roof hanging on for dear life. And I do one side of my roof and my hands right now are sweating just so thinking about this. If you did this yesterday, that means you did it after work in the dark. It was a two day project. Okay. Yes. So day one was me realizing you're in over your head uh -huh. because it's a two story house on the first level, same roof pitch on one side of the house. So luckily I got to run it flat across this gutter along the front of the house. And then it had this pitch over my garage. So I'm doing that and I'm like, if I fall, it's 10, 11 foot fall onto, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whatever. I, I could for sure get hurt, but. You could die. Yeah, I was willing to risk it. Okay, <laughs> day Christmas one, day one, day one, I was willing to risk it. Day two, after having almost fallen off the roof on day one, I decided to call up my brother-in-law. He comes to the house, it's like 4.30 p.m. And we go buy this rope from Tractor Supply. And it's like the cheapest rope we can find <laughs> that's 50 feet, right? Okay. So we get this rope. I tie it around my waist. You got to be kidding me. No. And this is embarrassing <laughs> too to talk about because I used to work for a fall protection company. So I know better. Yeah. And anyway, I have this thing tied around my waist. <laughs> Just keep in mind the idea is not to catch me if I fall. The rope is constantly tight with okay. my brother-in-law on the other end, on the other side of the roof. Okay. So that if I slip, the rope is already tight and yeah. it's to prevent the fall, not yeah. to save me uh, so from the fall. Or, or is he like belaying properly? Oh, oh yeah. Well, I don't know. That's what we kind of, him and I both laughed about because neither of us are climbers either. <laughs> we have no background in anything that we're trying to do. Okay. Sounds Other than being a little kid, like on the sand lot and trying to get the ball on the other side of the fence, yeah. we have no experience. Um, so he's hanging on. And when I got to that second story, I'm telling you, it took me 45 minutes to warm up to get over there. Anyway, end of story is I got the lights done. I risked my life. I guarantee some of my neighbors had cameras set up, you know, just trying to capture some crazy moment but that was gonna you were one two steps away from ending up on live league oh it could have been so bad <laughs> anyway i i did it my first year with christmas lights up i had my clark griswold moment you know i plugged the lights in and only one half of them worked initially yeah uh there was a plug that one of the prongs had kind of bent bent it back plugged it in everything worked and it was a masterful moment. So Christmas is exactly two weeks away. Mm -hmm. And then you get to take him down. I'm not doing it. <laughs> You're gonna I'm not to. doing it. I will I will cast a fishing rod up there with a hook on it <laughs> and grab with a hook and just rip them all yeah. off. I have never I'm been not getting up, up there again. Roof. I've been in my house for two years and I have set a ladder against my gutter and mm -hmm. climbed up towards the top and realize that I'm never getting up on that roof ever. And when I do Christmas lights, I'm doing them once. They're going to be a permanent installation yeah. and never again. I won't even get up on my roof to do it. I will use an extension ladder and move it 
one foot at a time. I'm never getting up on my Well, I feel about the same now. I It was scary yesterday. It The pitch on either end of the house was the same. But for whatever reason, when I had the rope hooked onto me, yeah. it was scarier. Um, but, of course, I was another level higher in the air. So, anyway... It, it was scary. I tried to make light a lighthearted story out of it. I looked at some articles online. I just, all I typed into Google was uh, just trying to find a happy article. Man survives yeah. after uh, falling from roof. The first two pages of Google were, were man dies yeah. installing Christmas lights. I bet a thousand people die every year. Yeah. It was the saddest thing I ever tried to look up. You don't want to be the person that doesn't show up to your 20-year high school union because he died (laughs) trying to put up Christmas lights. So that was my my day or uh, my my evening's progress the last two days. But I did finally get it up. I had the the moment where the lights came on. It felt really good. I don't know how I'm going to get them down. Well, we might hit some of the news stories here at the end, but I think this is a good time to transition over to the topic of the day, which is jigs and fixtures. And the way I'm going to force that transition (laughs) (laughs) is I've been doing some research into the permanent Christmas lights over the last year. And I've realized that I'm way too cheap to just pay for an out of the box system. Like here in Utah, we have a couple companies. We have trim light and we have jellyfish lighting. Those are the two main ones. Jellyfish lighting, each diode or each node is one watt. They have this awesome control system, but they're so expensive. I bet my house would be $7,000. Like 300 feet of lights would be about 7,000 bucks. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And trim light is probably half that cost. Still crazy expensive. So I've been researching how can I create my own and you can do it like you can get uh you can do strip lights or like led strip lights you can do led pixel lights or node lights which are similar to probably what you purchase where they're they're individual diodes that Mm -hmm. are individually waterproof and then you have standard christmas light wires between okay yeah right and the diodes look like little domes yeah so the way you turn something like that into a permanent installation is you get a piece of soffit J channel, drill holes into it, pop the diodes through the J channel, and then screw the J channel up into your soffit. And the J channel is that same sort of thin aluminum. Cool. Uh, so just sheet metal screws. And- yeah. Yeah. So fairly easy. And then you have to make sure you have power injection along, along the length of it and whatnot. And totally doable. But... Part of what makes the permanent installations more attractive is that they're very precise, right? I actually don't like that all that much, but it would look so bad if you didn't have precisely spaced lights. Oh, yeah. If it was permanent. If it's not permanent, that's part of the nostalgia of Christmas lights in my mind is like they're imperfect. Mine are perfect. I almost fell off the roof making them perfect. (laughs) They're they're 12-inch spacing, and they are all pointed in the exact same direction. So when I tackle this project, which is probably going to be in the summertime, because I don't want to do this at, when it's nighttime and 30 degrees outside. Oh, it was colder than 30 last night. You better believe I am printing a jig so that I can quickly drill my holes along the J channel, comes in 10 foot lengths, precisely. I'm printing a jig. 
just like I print jigs for the vast majority of home projects I do at home, I'm printing a jig for a fixture. It's funny you bring it up and that that was your segue. Yeah. Because I I actually was just visiting um, Rooftop Anchor last week or the week before I had them laser some parts for me. And that's the fall protection company. And they have some uh, desktop FDM printers in-house. They've got two of them now that run in parallel, same brand, um, and they love them. They get a lot of use out of them. And this might actually be an okay topic too, but uh, they printed, I, I just saw these, happened to see these prints that had these little inserts in them. And I was like, oh, it looks like some drill, some drill fixtures mm -hmm. and, or drill jig. Yeah. And my buddy who works there is like, yeah, that's exactly what they are. How did you know? And I was like, well, we've built a couple of these. Like we talk about this all the time, jigs mm -hmm. and fixtures. And what they had built them for, they kind of went around this round, this bend on some round tube. It's kind of like a cattle gate type okay. situation. Um, this company, again, is a fall protection company. So they build these gates that go around the perimeters of, of top levels of skyscrapers and buildings that are over three stories tall. And they have these other kind of intricate structures that they build out of tubing and they need these consistently drilled holes so that the hinges all work and everything. Yeah. Uh, and they're using desktop printers. And I said, well, what's, what's the problem with them? Why are they in here? And he said, well, they heat up the bushings heat up and then they end up getting loose inside there. And that's where it comes down to materials. Oh, right. Yeah. So I said, yeah. what material are you using? And he's like, oh, I think we're using pet G. Okay. PETG, which is a popular thermoplastic on desktop machines. Right, but really low temp. Yeah, I think it's like 143F. Yeah. Or somewhere around there. And maybe up to like 150. Okay. But I said, well, you should try a different plastic. And he's like, well, PET, pet G's like 463F. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, check this out. And he goes to the little... Um, the UI uh -huh. on the printer where all the settings are. And he shows me the print nozzle heat setting and it's at like 460 something or yeah, it, it's a higher, much, much, much higher temp. And I said, no, that's like the liquefying temp. That's like what it, you know, same with injection molded parts, like the liquefying temperature and what you're actually injecting those, those liquid state thermoplastics is much, much, much higher he was thinking that that matched the end use right. uh, melting point. Right. So there was some confusion there. And that's actually a topic of confusion broadly in polymer 3D printing is what temperatures can the materials withstand? And I'm normally asked, what is the melting temperature of a material? And what's interesting is, in fact, most materials that are 3D printed do not have melt temperatures. Like, Strictly speaking, they don't state that on the data sheet. No, strictly speaking, these materials do not have melt temperatures at all. They don't melt. Did you know this? They become softer, but they do not melt. Do they just burn? No, they become soft. 
they become softer, but they're what's called an amorphous material. Amorphous as opposed to a crystalline material or a semi-crystalline material. And amorphous materials don't have melt temperature. So you always go by either like the Vicant softening temperature or the glass transition temperature or the heat deflection temperature, which is what yes. we get in our spec sheets is a heat deflection temperature, which while you're looking up whatever you are looking up, I'll explain what a heat <laughs> deflection temperature is. So many designers and engineers are familiar with a three-point bending test. A three-point bending test would be you have a wishbone of material, a test piece of material, and you support it on two sides by pins so that they are free to move. And you press down on the center of that uh, wishbone. And under a three-point bending test, you're trying to evaluate mechanical properties of, of the material. But, and so the pressure increases. In a heat deflection temperature test, this basic setup is the same, but instead of increasing the force, you are increasing the temperature. And as the temperature increases, these materials start to weaken or soften. And because they're softening, they deflect more under load. And once it reaches a 2% deflection at that temperature, that's the heat deflection temperature. So we use it to interpret how temperature resistant is a material and ballpark under what load, under a loading situation, what temperature would be an appropriate use case. But it's not a melt temperature and it's not a ceiling temperature. It's not the max temperature it can operate. It's, in my mind, it's mostly used to compare across different material options. So here's what I found interesting. Um, after I came back from talking to him, I looked up the data sheet for, or just trying to find a data sheet for yeah. PETG. And I noticed a trend, maybe you'll be able to shed some more light on this, but there were multiple, um, I guess, pressures the PSI. So the testing method that you had just talked about is the ASTM D648. Okay. And that's the HDT heat deflection temperature. Uh, and there are two different. There are two different pressures. Numbers. So what, what can you tell us about that? Well, remind me one is like, what are the two different pressures? It's like 67 PSI and, and like 260 like, or something like 148. Okay. Um, but I don't know if that's totally standardized. I think it is. It, is it? I think it is. And we have two test results in many of our spec sheets as well. 66 PSI. So we, a lot of our data sheets have both. Yeah. So 66 and 264. So I don't know the answer, but. I have a guess at the answer. Uh, think about shore value or hardness. You have different scales, right? And you need different scales so that you're not looking at such a broad range of results all on one scale, right? So we have an A scale, B scale, whatever, mm -hmm. and um, they're sort of grouped. And I suspect this is the same situation. You could think of it as a different scale where okay. some materials might be so temperature resistant that if you were to view them on the same scale, it would be hard to decipher the differences. And so they have two regions 
of testing. That makes sense. <clears throat> That's my guess. The thing that struck me is the difference between 66 PSI and 264 PSI seems huge. And the values on temperature aren't that much different. Like, for example, I'm looking at an ASA data sheet right now. And the heat deflection at 66 PSI using the ASTM D648 test method is 98C or 208F. Okay. Pretty incredible, in my opinion. Same testing method with 264 PSI, you have a 91C, 196F. So the temperature barely goes down. Yeah, this is... This is uh... Something that I've never, it's always bothered me, but I've never really looked into. And when I was explaining the test earlier, I used the word force, right? Mm -hmm. And forces and pressures are two different things. With a three-point bending test, you're using a force. You're not using a pressure. And I have always, in my mind, when I saw those results, I always assumed it was like an, an ambient pressure of the test, and it's not the actual pressure or force being put on the model. Does that make sense? But I don't know if that's the case. Well, I'm looking up the, the testing method right now on ASTM.org. Okay. I think I would have spent a little bit of time researching this if the numbers were more significantly different, but the fact that they weren't made me just kind of gloss over. I may need to look into this more because I would like to, I'd like to see a video or something on the testing method. Well, I'm glad you brought it up before we knew the answer. <laughs> well, it gives someone to look something to look forward to. This is riveting content. Someone, someone <laughs> meaning we only have one listener that we know of for sure. Yeah. I'm just kidding. We haven't actually <laughs> looked at the stats, have we? We don't know. They're probably so astronomically high that it's, it's really, hard to keep track. Yeah. My Instagram, my Facebook, LinkedIn, it's all blowing up right now. <laughs> so <clears throat> what was the... Temperature data that you found for Petchy. Did you um, just tell me? I I guessed it. It was uh, like 146 oh, to right. 154. Okay, but that's right. And so the upshot here is like if you are going through the effort of building a jig or a fixture, like let's step back. If you're going through the effort of building something, there is a huge incentive to do it precisely, to do it accurately, to do it reliably over and over and over. And that's why we invest in machine tools like CNC machines and other automated tools so that we can offload the precision and the reliability off the person and put it on the machinery. But that's not always cost effective. It's not always time effective. And that's why jigs and fixtures exist. And 3D printing lowers the boundary uh, between you and a jig and a fixture that you know is going to help you create a piece of work that with the, a skill, with what appears to be a skill beyond what you possess, right? With the right type of jig or fixture, me at home in my woodworking shop, I can create parts much more precisely than I could without a jig or fixture. Maybe a skilled craftsman with a lot of experience could do it without one, but I'm punching above my weight class by bringing home a jig or a fixture and tackling projects that way. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> well, before I get into that, <clears throat> excuse me, let me answer the question. So on the PETG data, this particular data sheet does not list which 
uh, which pressure it was tested at. Okay. Uh, but it states 163F, okay. 73C. So that's the highest one I can find, which makes me think yeah. that that's the lower, the 66 PSI. Which is about 25% <clears throat> lower than ABS. Yeah. And ASA is going to have you, again, over, over 200. Yeah. So it, his machine is capable of printing ASA. So that's a step in the right direction right off the bat. And I don't know how hot those drill bushings are getting. <clears throat> and they can, there's little tricks they can do. They can use cooling fluid, you know, so that there's less friction between the drill and the bushing. And th- there's some things they can do. Uh, but first thing I suggested to him was look into a, a new material. Yeah, I think that's the clear cut winner here because you don't want your jig to slow you down. Like the jig is enabling you to work faster and you want to be able to work as fast as humanly possible without sacrificing the accuracy. And if the material alone is causing you to slow down, that's a no brainer. Yeah. And we have on our scale here, we have printers capable of handling the Ultim 1010. Ultim 1010 has a heat deflection temperature of 421. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, which is incredible. If you are heating up a drill bushing to the point where it's deforming the print in an Ultim 1010, you probably don't know how to operate a drill. Yeah, well, (laughs) and there are other use cases. One of the coolest things that I saw that I can recall right off the bat in terms of a, a, a jig and fixture was a weld fixture. And when you think FDM, you probably don't think I want this anywhere near... Um, any type of weldment and what Penske auto racing did is they added these aluminum chill blocks that were essentially um, they were like a two by two or, or just a, a basic extrusion of, of aluminum okay. that they could just cut on the bandsaw to length and pop it in here. Uh, what they realized is they could get the aluminum to take the bulk of the heat from the weld. And by the time that it reached the material, it had lowered the temperature significantly. And so there's all kinds of things you can do to get creative to make. Yeah. So you don't have to make the whole fixture out of aluminum, you know, and not to mention the ergonomic aspect of it. You can make these in much better shapes than what you'd be able to make with, with just like traditional stock, which if, right. if you've seen traditional jigs and fixtures, they're a mess of squares and circles yeah. and raw stock. If you can buy it in raw stock, you do. And then you cut it to length. You're right. And the way I've always explained this is when you're designing a jig or a fixture out of conventional materials, you're you're given a certain number of like Lego pieces, right? And you have to piece them together in a way that achieves the result. And it takes longer to design something that way. And it takes longer to manufacture something. When you bring 3D printing in, it's sort of like the ability to create your own Lego pieces. And so you just design them in whatever way is intuitive. You're going to put features and design features in a way that's going to make the job easiest. Some would argue it sort of makes you a lazy designer because you don't have to put a lot of thought outside of how do I get this job? Yeah, I think one of the major benefits to that, if you think of it in another way, is now my, de- my designer doesn't need to have the same knowledge that an old designer might have 
needed. True. Now I can potentially hire some kid that's working in the STEM program at Wasatch High School, you know, and and he can he can do all the same things because he's not really held back by any of the traditional manufacturing methods. Right. He doesn't even need to know how those work because all he really needs to know is how the 3D printer produces. And more than likely, there's less risk in him uh, pursuing a design that ultimately doesn't work, right? And because the amount of effort that goes into one method versus the other, it really could be the difference between being able to create the jigger fixture and not being able to create it at all and just saying, hey, this is going to be a job done by hand. Yeah. Well, if uh, if I can, I want to try and, and bring up another topic. Okay. Speaking of doing things by hand. Um, one thing that I like about, especially the, the drill fixture or uh, jig that Braxton showed me, um, was its ability to fit onto a large assembly that would be cumbersome, really difficult to like move into a drill press, for example. Mm-hmm. Now I can use this to enable me to use a hand tool. Yeah. Just a regular drill. Right. Handheld drill. Now I can put this fixture on the assembly and use a hand tool to get a very precise result. So it's very empowering in that way, uh, especially when you're talking... They do, I'd say they do batch production. You know, it's not millions of widgets per year, but it's thousands. Yeah. And they come in bunches. They don't really just sit there and pop these out, you know, one every five seconds, you know, for as many as they have to do per year. It's, oh, I got an order of 20 of these. And then it might be a couple months before they get another order and it might be for only five or, or 15 so these things don't take up a lot of space on the shelf. That's one nice thing. Um, if they do, you can throw them away. Right. There's such a low cost. You can now store these digitally. If you have tons of these, not to mention if you have, say, multiple locations and everyone's got a 3D printer, everyone has the same 3D printer, same materials. I can now send a digital copy. Oh, hey, we did this job at this location. Here's the fixture files. Right. Boom. Send a digital copy over. You don't need to send anything overnight. You don't need to... Even if you did, it wouldn't be as heavy. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You can easily iterate on these. And some fixtures interact with the human body a little bit. And so it opens up the possibility of having fixtures that are somewhat custom made to whoever's using them. Right. Imagine a type of fixture that might be handled by both like a very small petite woman and a very large burly man. Their hand sizes are going to be completely different. And you don't have to try to create one fixture that fits both of them. You could potentially create a fixture to be used by one or the other. I've toured enough shops to know that even if a lot of effort goes into creating a fixture and there's some interaction between the designer and the end user. Oftentimes, if it's not working right, the end user is going to take a die grinder to it or modify it 
and suddenly you are opening up the door to perhaps then ruining the tool or modifying it in a way that it doesn't perform correctly. And they might be doing that because they know that the investment in that tool is much higher or replacing the tool is not going to be possible. Again, if you're printing a tool, there's less investment into it. You're going to be more open to iterating on upon feedback, etc. Yeah, which is a big deal. Um, a lot of people don't like change, but this makes change palatable. Yeah. And lower consequence. Right. So it definitely enables, you know, I, I've worked in a few shops and shop guys are the hardest working guys out there and they don't get enough credit because they work with the tools you give them. And sometimes they might ask for better tools, uh, but they don't always get the better tools. And like you said, if they need to make it, they will. Yeah. Uh, but this gives them the opportunity, those guys that are maybe a little bit quieter about needing something, uh, the the ability to hey, say, hey, I, I could use this. Right. And we can create that in minutes. You know, obviously I'm 50 minutes, 120. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But it's it's designable, creatable, printable in a relatively low amount of time. The best part about all of this is it works in parallel to what you're already doing. So everybody's a winner right. at that point. And what's nice is going back to this idea of the design being more intuitive. If you are getting feedback from someone in the shop floor who isn't, knows the job to be done mm-hmm. quite well, but doesn't necessarily know conventional design for manufacturer rules, they don't need to know because... The designer can listen to them and the end user could be describing what it should look like. And you just design straight from that. Like collaboration between the designer and the end user becomes much simpler. Yeah. And I think that's, you actually bring up a good point. Like this is a medium. It's an enabling medium in the sense that the guy working in the shop that's probably using the tool isn't the same person that's designing the tool. So Uh, Anybody who's worked in manufacturing knows there's always a loss somewhere in communication. The more people it goes through, it's just like that old game of telephone. Yeah, right. The the more... I always purposely... You would mess it up. Yeah. You were the troll. person. You were that kid. Yeah. All right. All right. I was always... I was the kid that was always mad at you (laughs) because I was the one with the original message just hoping, hoping that it wouldn't be distorted. I know. That's probably something that a therapist would have to unravel, but <laughs> we'll leave that for another day. So it it's really cool technology though, to be able to have a lower consequence, to be able to talk about these things with anybody. And now you have the ability to, I guess, just create over and over and over and iterate until you get it right without a huge consequence. I know I keep saying that, but it's just, if you can iterate more, Everybody wants to iterate more. Uh, if you're an engineer, you've done any sort of design, you always just want one more. Like, right. Give me one more revision. Give me one more iteration. Let me let me have one more stab at, at making this perfect model. Right. And it's really enabling in that way. And then with jigs and fixtures, you don't have to keep that clunky old jig or fixture right. forever just because you know how many hours went into creating it. Right. So you're trying to get the ROI on it and you're just struggling every time. Um, Now, ergonomics deals with size, which we talked about. It deals with shape, 
as mm -hmm. we talked about. But it also deals with weight and creating a fixture that's lighter than whatever fixture it's replacing has a compounding effect, particularly on jigs and fixtures that are being incorporated into a task that is done repeatedly mm -hmm. over time. So imagine something like an automotive assembly line where someone is doing the same job hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. If you are making a, a jigger fixture more lightweight, not only are they going to speed up by a certain percentage, which means they're going to be more than likely more productive over the course of a day, but you're also preserving their strength mm -hmm. or their energy throughout the day. So that also is going to compound and improve their product. And you expand that beyond just a day's timeline into a week, into a month, into a year. Not only are you becoming more productive over the course of that time, but you are increasing the longevity of that worker over time, right? They're going to have potentially less health complications, right? Less wear and tear on their body. And that is a benefit that's sort of hard to quantify. Yeah. And, but it is quantifiable and especially, and, and it scales really well. Yeah. That got me thinking of end effectors. Yeah. So while we're trying to preserve the human body, we also are trying to preserve robotic bodies. Correct. Uh, the maintenance and wear and tear on a robot. Exactly. Imagine the mileage you get out of a, a, even just a ball bearing, right? Yeah. Um, a ball bearing, say a skateboard, loaded up with an elephant like me on it, rolling down the hill versus a 60 pound, you know, seven or eight year old. I don't know how much seven or eight year olds weigh, but <laughs> that wheel bearing is going to last much longer Yeah, with the, the lower load. Same thing with these, these robotic arms, not to mention most of these, uh, robotic arms have a max speed, you know, per axis. If we can reduce the weight, we can increase that speed, which then leads to more production. So these robots have a finite payload in general, right? And they're generally quite low. So when you go and buy an industrial robot, you're looking at payloads of three kilograms, five kilograms, 10 kilograms. They are, especially on the low end, quite small. So if by incorporating 3D printed end effectors onto this robot, you can go into a lower class robot Right, right out of the gate, you're saving tens of thousands of dollars by matching the correct robot with the correct end effector to, to do whatever task you're after. Not to mention the maintenance costs over time is going to be much higher on a higher class robot. So I just had an idea. Okay. So that we can figure out, get a feel for how many listeners we actually have. Uh, even if it's just that one, hey, you out there. We need some feedback. What I want to do is invite listeners to send us, um, I don't know, how? Email? What's a good way to get a hold of us? What are we sending? What I want is to get someone's jig or fixture that they've produced to help with a household task. Okay. So I like that. Has to have been done on a hobby level printer, or even if it wasn't, it has to have the potential to be done 
on a hobby level printer. So say someone has access to a, a Fortis 450. Okay. Something that would fit in the build envelope of like a Prusa or a desktop machine. But a jigger fixture that's helped you with a household project. What if it's handmade? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. It proves the point. I mean, the whole thing we're trying to get is you had a reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Show us why and tell us how it improved, uh, whether it was it cut my time in half or it weighed so much less that it was easier, whatever the improvement was, tell us what that is. And we should offer we should offer a free print or something on one of our, our big machines here. Okay. Even if it's a Thingiverse file, what do you think? I'm good with that. All right. So And it doesn't matter when you listen to this, right? We we gotta have a close off date at some point. So let's say end of January. Okay, end of January. If you listen to this before the end of January, send an email to Tate Brown, T Brown, exactly how you think it's spelled, <laughs> at goengineer.com. Perfect. Yep, I'll keep track of those submissions. And let's say end of January, first month of 2021, hopefully it's a much better year. I'll select a winner, and that winner will get a free print on a Fortis 450. Cool. And we'll give you some material options. It'll probably be kind of a material of the day thing. Uh, We have a print operator here that, you know, he's constantly working to uh, produce prints. So whatever materials on the printer that day will be the likely material that your uh, your product will end up in. And what we want is a native uh, part file. We'll, We'll talk this through. Yeah. When you win. I don't want I don't want everyone to send what part (laughs) they want printed either. Just. Send us your your jig or fixture. Tell us a quick story about why it's good and how it helped improve your process. And I'll select a winner by the end of January. I love it. I love it. I'm sure we'll be talking about jigs and fixtures again. It's my favorite application, to be honest, because it's the one I use the most at at home. I have very few skills when it comes to (laughs) making things, but I know how to design and I know how to make jobs easier. And so I strive for perfection. I never reach it, but I get much closer by bringing a jig or a fixture home. So we'll be talking about it more. Uh, In the last few minutes here, let's talk about one of the pieces of news that we can talk about. There's a piece of news that we will be able to talk about next week, which is super exciting. There's some more news that we'll be able to talk about in the new year. I think this is our first legitimate teaser. It is a teaser. (laughs) And uh, But one piece of news that we can talk about is the acquisition of Origin by mm-hmm. Stratasys. Yeah. So I read a little bit about Origin. You, you had mentioned that you were somewhat familiar with them. Uh, it was co-founded by two guys, Chris Prucha, who formerly worked for Apple, and Joel Ong. And he was from Google. So this is obviously a startup in San Francisco. This is a Silicon Valley. Classic. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you'd think, too. From the outside looking in, it's 100% what you'd think. It's only five years old. They were founded in 2015. Um, so they haven't been around a super long while. But what I found when I was digging into them was how they kind of like decided to start the company. Okay. Have you heard of Marshawn Lynch? Yeah. So beast mode. 
Okay. His company, Beast Mode, I guess they had to create all these like shoe tags. Uh-huh. And they were afraid they weren't going to meet the deadline. Like they were on the absolute edge of meeting the deadline. And that's got what they, they did end up making the deadline. They got all these shoe tags printed. And that's what got them thinking. We need a machine that can produce more reliably and at a higher production Who was type level. The founders. Okay. They, they were they, working with Mr. Lynch? Yes. Okay. Yes. According to, to what I've read. Mr. Lynch. Mr. Lynch. <laughs> Mr. Marshawn. If Marshawn's listening, we'd love a call too. Yeah, you can be our first guest on this <laughs> podcast. Did the delivery meet your expectations? No. But um, it, it's pretty cool. And then as I read a little bit more, um, they'd actually been approached by Stratasys before. That's and, right. And turned them down. Uh, at that point, you know, the pandemic, I think, had just hit. Uh, they started printing the nasal swabs. And they were one of the companies that were just absolutely killing it yeah. with the production of these things. And they got a lot of these materials certified for medical use and just really, really cool company. So uh, I don't know. What what do you think the, the major goals are in this acquisition by Stratasys? Well, I would suspect that the goal is to round out their technology portfolio. Uh, Stratasys is committed this year to focus in on polymer additive manufacturing and more specifically polymers in pursuit of manufacturing uh, in general, manufacturing aids, manufacturing parts, end-use parts. And the technology that Origin is using, the DLP-powered resin-type technology, lends itself to production quantities. And so Stratasys for sure is just trying to round out their portfolio in pursuit of that mission, newly focused mission on polymer additive manufacturing. Origin is a smaller company. Uh, they don't have the same name recognition as Carbon 3D, mm -hmm. but they have a very similar technology to Carbon 3D. Right. And it's going to be a direct competitor to Carbon 3D, which Carbon 3D has been notable in their ability to pursue end-use parts. Adidas cooperated with them to produce a, you know, a low-volume run of 3D-printed shoes, right? The tops were fabric, but the soles were 3D-printed. I think they did a run of a few thousand of them. The nasal swabs is a great example of that. You know, I visited Origin two years ago in late 2018, and at the time, we were trying to make the case for SolidWorks over... On shape in Fusion 360. <laughs> and I think we were successful there. Yeah. We were successful there with the argument of, hey, you guys are ramping up. You guys are quickly becoming a very legitimate company. You are going to have to have all of your files in order. You're going to have to be able to interact with a wide range of suppliers. SolidWorks for sure is the right choice there. Um, and they apparently listened to us. And they are. I mean, they sold for what? $100 million is what that deals with. That's what it's worth right now. But Stratasys hopes that it's worth about $200 million per year Yeah. in as soon as five years. So the additional reading that I did was that the, the original co-founders of Origin are going to kind of stick with Origin. They're going to stay in San Francisco. Stratasys will kind of slowly 
uh, integrate. But I think right now, from what I've read, the idea is to keep the two kind of like sister companies and let them organically grow into something and utilize each other, leverage each other's strong points. My understanding is that the origin technology should be coming to the channel in the second half of next year. That's exciting. It is exciting. That means we should be getting our hands on it. Then at the latest, probably before that. I think the other thing too is the price point, right? Like you mentioned, it helps round out the offering from Stratasys. With Polyjet and resin-based technologies that we have available to us, there's a, there's a pretty good gap. The, the Object 30 has kind of filled that low, um, what, twenty dollars to $50,000 range yeah. for some time now. This gives us a whole new offering from ten to fifty k, I think, and it definitely helps round things out. For sure, I'm excited about that. Um, I am trying to hedge my excitement a little bit because we do have so many new things on our plate <laughs> right now and coming to us in Q1 of next year. Uh, we have new technologies. We have all sorts of things happening. So I know it's a little bit in the future, so I'm trying not to get too excited about it. But uh, when the time comes, I'm all in. It's going to be a great compliment to the technologies that we have available to us and uh, what's broadly available to our customers. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it, it is a really cool story um, to see a startup go for $100 million after five years. That's if we could do that. I think it was pretty cool too. Yeah, I mean, there's a no desktop cooler. metal, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other episode. So I do want to ask a little bit more about the DLP. Um, what do you know about it? That's the digital ice, digital light projection. Pro- is it projection or processing? Uh, it probably could be both. It's the same. It well, <laughs> projection encompasses more. That's a better descriptor. Yeah. Um, for what it does. Can it's you explain ener- it a little bit? Uh, yeah, I can explain what I know about it. Um, it's the energy source that supplies the energy to cure the photopole. So imagine like a V650 flex, right? V60, V650 flex is a stereolithography machine, SLA. It has a vat of resin. It has a power source. In this case, it's a laser and it's going to trace around the outside of the par and then it's going to do rasters on the inside, sort of like an FDM toolpath, just much faster. But with light. But with light. Now, with DLP, you don't have a point laser. You have a projection. Okay, so imagine you take a projector that you were familiar with, like Mm -hmm. on a TV. Yep. You put it above the vat, point it down at the vat, and you're projecting an image on the Like the Batman spotlight. Like the Batman spotlight, exactly. So you're actually curing an entire layer all at once. I'm obviously the kid of this group. <laughs> the kid of this group. So that spotlight is then shown on that top layer uh-huh. of liquid resin. Uh-huh. And it cures in just that area. Exactly. Okay. So you're curing the entire layer at once. And then the I'm saying it's from above. And actually, in most cases, DLP is from below. So it, the DLP projector is shooting upwards onto a thin layer of resin and then the build tray moves up and the part starts to pull out of seemingly a zero depth resin vat 
and then a new layer of resin is laid down. It projects again, the build tray moves up, the part starts doing merge out of this thin. So does that back. mean we can, it, well, I know for sure that means it's gotta print pretty fast, right? It's printing a projection on a whole layer at once versus having to trace yeah. the entire structure. It's, it's going to be faster than SLA. Okay. And now this is where I need to familiarize myself with actual what's happening. So like with Carbon 3D, they don't call it DLP, they call it clip. And they have some sort of oxygen layer yep. that impedes the curing just a little bit so that it's not fully cured. And then you move up and then it does it again. And you're, you're cu cur curing more than one layer at once. And it helps fuse the layers together. And it's more of a continuous pull out rather mm -hmm. than discrete layer by layer. When I was at Origin and I saw their parts in person, I was really impressed with the lack of layer lines. And so I, I not looked into their technology specifically. So does it require post-processing? -proc does it require a secondary cure? Uh, that I don't know. Okay. Carbon, it does. some of their materials do require post-curing. Um, Origin, I'm not really sure. The support material is the same material as the model. So we are accustomed to polyjet would be analogous. That has a separate type of support material it's washed away fairly quickly and then you have a part and there's little evidence of support touching the model. That will be a little bit different. Uh, the fact that you're pulling it up in Z, you could create scenarios where you're trapping resin. You could create scenarios where you have suction. You could create scenarios where it's not fully supported. These are challenges that I don't know how Origin has approached them or overcome them. Probably but, pretty well. Uh, they're obviously doing something <laughs> right to, to draw the attention of Stratasys. These guys are, they're software guys. So I think that's kind of, that's their bread and butter. Um, I think what they call it is programmable photopolymerization. Okay. Or P3. Okay. And it's essentially DLP, but at a quote advanced level. Yeah. So... We're going to find out what that advanced really means in the coming months and pretty exciting. Looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to the announcement next week. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see about that. Uh, just for everyone's information, if you want more information on Origin, go to their website. Uh, they'll talk a little bit about the partnership between Origin and Stratasys. Uh, I also found a, a pretty decent article on Business Wire. So um, you can get more information there. And if you have more information that you'd like to share with us, more than happy to listen as well. We absolutely. need to be educated on this. Yeah. And you have my email now. Again, that's tbrown at goengineer. Not goengineering, but goengineer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting some feedback from from some of our listeners. Should be fun. I hope we can do more of this stuff in the future. I think we will. All right. That's it. Take care. See you later.